Hey everybody, welcome back to the Curiosity Chronicles. It is a new month, which means it is time for a new episode. This episode is the start of a new series, although it's not a series that I'm going to do one after the other. It's just kind of a series that I'll intersperse throughout. This one's called Legends of the West. This is, shout out to Nate, Nate Daling, got the idea from him, uh, and then ran with it. Glad I did. This was a super fun episode to put together. So today, Legend of the West, we're going to talk about Wild Bill Hickok, legend on the American frontier. Many stories about him. I'm going to add to it. I'm going to try to keep it as factual as possible, which is not easy to do with Wild Bill. So let's get started. Let's jump right into this. I'm really excited. I hope I don't go super long, but this is definitely an episode where there's a lot of information. So bear with me. I promise you it is all worth it. I had so much fun with this episode. I've been annoying my wife like crazy with all these weird Wild Bill stories. So she finally kicked me down in the basement to record. So let's get into it. My name is Brett Bilesma. I'm your host of the Curiosity Chronicles. And this is what I was curious about this month. Let's talk about Wild Bill, or as he was born, James Butler Hickok. He was born on May 27, 1832. His father was William, and his mother was named Polly. He was the fifth child in the family, large family. And he lived with his family in Illinois, but they did move around a lot. Um, an interesting little tidbit about his childhood, which I'm not going to spend as very much time on. I, I want to try to get to the, the really interesting part, but it was interesting that his father, William, uh, offered their house as a stop on the Underground Railroad. He was a staunch abolitionist, very anti-slavery. And that definitely plays into later life for his son, James. 1852, James was 15. His father died. And his father was a fairly sickly man for a good portion of James' life up until 15 when he passed away. So after his father passed away and even before that, James was kind of responsible for providing food for the family. And he did this because he was already, at a young age, an excellent marksman and very comfortable with guns. So he went out hunting, brought back food. They were farmers, but the family sold the farm and they moved back to Homer, Illinois. And that is where, kind of different from the culture of the day, of the day James was educated, learned to read and write, and that shows in his letters throughout his life that he was a well-educated man for the time. But as it got close to his 18th birthday, he started to get restless, wanted to head out, go west, young man. That was the, the cry of so many young men in this time, go west, 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 west. So he decided, that's what I'm going to do. But his older brothers convinced him, nah, just wait it out. Just don't go running off just now. And he worked as a driver of horse and mules. He was a, he was a teamster. But finally, June of 1856, he's 19 years old. He and his brother Lorenzo decide they're going to set off west. And they're going to head for St. Louis. And they're going to prepare to move the entire family to Kansas. Now, at 
this point, in 1856, it doesn't sound like the West, but Missouri and Kansas were on, like, the leading edge of the frontier. That was about as far west as, quote-unquote, civilization as the white man, again, quote-unquote, thought of it, extended. Kansas. So that's what they did. They headed out. Lorenzo, his brother, however, was not nearly as restless as his brother James. So when they got to St. Louis, he decided, nope, not for me. I'm heading back to Illinois. James, on the other hand, he was ready to go. He wanted to, he wanted to keep going. And this is when James began to be called Bill. And if anybody can make sense of this story, help me out, because it literally makes no sense to me at all. Here's how he came to be called Bill. His brother Lorenzo was actually not the first Lorenzo in the family. The first child that was born, I believe, in James and Lorenzo's family was named Lorenzo, and he he died young. So then they had another baby also named it Lorenzo, which super weird, if you ask me. And apparently Lorenzo number two agreed because he started taking on the name Bill. And within the family, Lorenzo was called Bill. But then in the in the articles that I was reading, it said basically James and Lorenzo getting ready to part ways. They're talking and steamboat passengers, the steamboat that James was just about to get on, overheard them and either as a joke or some more weird joke or just because they misheard when James got on the steamboat, they were like, hey, Bill. And he was like, cool. And I'm, I'm Bill now. And he just he just kept the name. <laughs> so he was known as Bill, not Wild Bill yet. Even though for the entirety of his life, he always signed his name on letters and documents as J.B. Hickok. But he just adopted the name Bill, even though that's what his brother was called, and also his father. It doesn't make sense to me. (laughs) But, hey, Wild Bill sounds a lot better than Wild Jim, so we're just going to go with it. So it's 1856, and a young Bill, now I'm going to call him Bill, since we know, know the backstory of that, a young Bill, Hickok, arrives in Kansas. At the time, it was nicknamed Bleeding Kansas. It was not a safe time to be in the territory of Kansas. It wasn't a state yet, and that's kind of the main reason why it was so dangerous. This was a very volatile time in United States history, of course. I can't delve too deeply into it, but it was just before the Civil War. Pro-slavery, anti-slavery factions are heated at this point, and there was the debate on whether territories, when they became a state, would be admitted to the Union as a free state or a slave state. This was a big deal politically for so many reasons that I can't go into. Because he was raised in such a staunchly anti-slavery household, Bill Hickok was, of course, on the side of anti-slavery. He was an abolitionist. And so when he got to Kansas and there were 
factions fighting, literally fighting. It was almost like a mini war. There were militias raised by just random people. It wasn't really even, there was like no law. It's not like the government was out there raising a militia. It was just random people made up a militia. If they were pro-slavery, they would attack the militia that was anti-slavery. Wild Bill, not Wild Bill yet, I shouldn't say that. Bill Hickok joined the anti-slavery movement. And it's a little bit murky exactly what his escapades were at this time. Because he was not famous at this point. So there was nothing in newspapers or articles like later in life that would attest to his adventures. So the only real record of what happened in this time in Kansas was the letters he wrote home. Of course, the letters he's writing back to his parents, or excuse me, his mother and his siblings was like, oh, I'm having the time of my life and I've given up cards and I've given up drinking and no women enticing me. When in reality, from a few other contemporary sources that sort of kind of mention it, he was definitely probably drinking a lot, definitely probably fighting, and he definitely had the acquaintance of women for hire. More than likely. Nothing's proven, but that seems to be the case. For sure, it seems likely that he took up arms with a, a free state, free state, not slave state, militia that was headed by James Lane. James Lane was a very, very famous figure at this point for his anti-slavery views, and he had a militia to back him. And it was more than likely that Hickok actually became a personal bodyguard of Lane sometimes in, sometimes in 1857. But there's just, not a lot of proof. There's not much to go on. He was a 19-year-old kid. Nobody cared about Bill Hickok at this point. Who was this guy? Eh. There was an interesting event that did kind of shape later life for Bill Hickok in 1857. He was very experienced uh, as a teamster. He had worked before he came out to Kansas, but in 1857, he was working on a wagon train as a teamster. Obviously, being a militia member is not a full-time job. He has to still make money. And he saved the life of an 11-year-old boy. So he was probably about 19, 20 at this point. The 11-year-old boy was about to get the crap kicked out of him by a different teamster for basically nothing. And Bill Hickok who at this point was pretty rough and tumble and able to take care of himself, stepped in, kind of beat the crap out of the teamster that was uh, victimizing the boy, and probably saved this boy's life. Like, this teamster was probably going to beat this 11-year-old to death. The crazy thing is, that 11-year-old boy was named William Cody, who in later years will be known as Buffalo Bill. And it was the start of a lifelong friendship. And in fact, at this point, Bill Cody basically regarded Bill Hickok as a older brother type figure. And that friendship lasted till the day Wild Bill died. Such a weird coincidence. And that keeps coming up in Bill Hickok's life. Like he meets these famous people over and over again. And it's uncanny. And we come across some more in this podcast, but I love it. It's just like, 
wow, this guy was everywhere. In case you haven't noticed, I love Wild Billy Cock. It is one of my favorite people in American history. Anyway, I digress. So, moving on to 1858. Wild Bill, actually stop doing that. Bill Hickok has his first taste of law enforcement. He is elected to be the constable in Monticello, Kansas. He's 20 years old, pretty good for a 20-year-old kid. And constable wasn't really like a full-time job, didn't really pay the bills, so he also settled down and tried his hand at farming and met a nice woman named Mary Owens. From his letters home, it seems like he had full intentions of marrying Mary Owens when he's 20, 21 years old. His family, however, did not approve. As much as they were anti-slavery and free staters, they did not approve that Mary Owens was half Indian. Which seems a little bit, uh, well, it's backwards thinking, but that's how they felt. So it was fairly normal on the frontier for white men to marry half American Indian or even full American Indian women, but back in Illinois, very much frowned upon. And so the family sent Lorenzo, the brother, to go talk some sense into his brother Bill. And I don't recall if it was before his brother got there or after, but Bill Hickok had made a bit of a name for himself being the bodyguard of Lane in the pro- excuse me, the anti-slavery militia, and he was targeted by the pro-slavery faction, and they came and actually burned his cabin and his farm down, which is a devastating blow financially, but also just psychologically, and well, it was a really dangerous time. So his brother convinced him, hey man, you gotta give up farming, find us more stable career something you're good at i didn't it didn't say in any of the things that i read but it was kind of implied like eh, maybe bill hickok was not the best farmer i don't know if that's fair but that's kind of the vibe that i got so anyway he left mary owens and decided nah, i'm gonna look for greener pastures which is kind of a theme unfortunately he kind of left women in his wake i think i'm not gonna go into all his dalliances throughout this podcast, but it seems like there's like women. He was a good looking man. I'm not going to lie for the time. I, I obviously, and he, it's a different time back then, but in a lot of articles or letters, men and women describe him in very complimentary terms. And so yeah, women, women were all about Bill Hickok and he was a little bit like love him and leave him moving on to greener pastures. <laughs> So, a true Wild West man, I suppose. <laughs> but he needed a stable job. And what he knew how to do was driving wagon trains. So that's what he did again. And again, driving a wagon train, he meets one of his childhood heroes and another legend of the West that I'll probably do a podcast on at some point. Kit Carson. How in the world does... He meet these people just randomly. It's so strange. And it was about this time that some of these stories that crop up later on when he became famous 
started started happening. So you have to be really careful with with Wild Bill because later on in life, after he's become this legendary figure, people mythologized him, and the stories that were passed around became like a game of telephone where someone told someone who told someone who told someone and suddenly this story has become this epic story that's mostly false with a few nuggets of truth but this particular story which has been a little bit mythologized does seem to be true so it was while he was driving this wagon train buffalo excuse me i'm gonna do that more than once i think i'm gonna say buffalo bill instead of wild bill bill hickok is driving a wagon. He comes across a cinnamon bear and cubs. Now, a cinnamon bear is a subspecies of a American black bear, and obviously, with cubs, this is a very dangerous encounter. These bears can get very violent in protection of their cubs. So the story goes that he obviously was in a dangerous situation. Bill ran up to the bear and took a shot at it, but gun was not very powerful the bullet ricocheted off the bear's skull and the bear got pissed which is understandable it just got shot in the head and so it attacked bill hickok kind of crushing him to the ground underneath her and he shoots again hits her in the paw now the bear is literally enraged and starts chewing on his left arm just going to town and he no bs in the most wild west fashion, like it's from a movie, he takes out his bowie knife and stabs the bear in the throat repeatedly until it's dead. He killed a full-grown bear with a knife. Like, are you kidding me? That can't be real. But it is. Like, it, it, it seems in all of the mythology of, of Wild Bill Hickok that this is actually a true story. Now... Later on in life, people would tell the story and say, oh, it was a huge grizzly bear. So there were times where it was exaggerated. But Wild Bill, to his credit, always told the story, no, it was a cinnamon bear, and this is what happened. (laughs) He killed a bear with a knife. Are you kidding me? It's amazing. There is still a little bit of debate. Some researchers say, nah, this is pure myth. It never happened. But there is definite concrete evidence that in 1860 and 1861 wild bill spent a good portion of that time recovering from severe injuries to his arm and his chest so the timelines match and the injuries match there's nothing else that i read that would say what could have caused those injuries unless they are also saying that those injuries are totally made up so i choose to believe that it's true because the evidence seems to bear out that it's fact so cool are you kidding me it's just my it's, it's, it's got to be one of my favorite stories about the wild west killed a bear with a buoy knife unbelievable unbelievable all right so now we are in the very early part of 1860s the civil war has just started although Bill Hickok is not involved yet. That comes later. And an incident takes place which will be kind of the very beginning of Hickok's fame. 
sometimes called the McCandless Incident, sometimes called the McCandless Massacre. It is one of those stories, again, that it's definitely a true story, but over time was very much exaggerated. So, at this point in his life, Hickok was the assistant stock tender at the Rock Creek Station for the Overland Stage Company. He basically took care of the horses and any cattle that were there. And he's 24 years old. He's still very young. And it was on July 12, 1861. So I guess we're more in the middle of 1861. It was later reported, this this whole incident was later written about in a magazine called the Harper's New Monthly Magazine, but it wasn't written until February of 1867. And it was written by Colonel George Ward Nichols, who said he heard the story from Hickok himself. We're going to come back around to this article but I'm going to kind of give you the story as the article wrote it. And then I'm going to try to give you what most people believe is the actual true story. So keep in mind, this is basically the incident that started Bill Hickok's fame. So as it was told in the magazine, Hickok was leading a Union Cavalry Detachment through southern Nebraska, and he wanted to visit an old friend. The old friend was the wife of a man named Horace Wellman. Horace Wellman was the manager of the Rock Creek Station at the Overland Stage Company. And as the story goes, he was being pursued, Hickok was being pursued, by a Confederate gang led by a man named, man named David McCandless, and they were they, they came upon Hickok at... Horace Wellman's cabin, and they attacked. So when McCandless invaded the cabin, Hickok immediately reacted quicker and shot him in the chest, and then quickly shot and killed five more men that were with McCandless. And then he proceeded to knock out another one of the men, at which point three men tackled him, threw him on the bed, and he quickly bested them in hand-to-hand combat and killed all three of them with a knife. It's a pretty great story if it had been true. So when this story was written about in 1867, which was six years after the actual events, it catapulted Hickok into the upper echelon of Western heroes. There were dime novels written about him, and it became, Whoa, Wild Bill, what a man. But... Honestly, the story that was written in the in the Harper's Magazine was almost entirely false. Pretty much the names were true, and the rest was bogus. So what actually did happen? So the true story is that the Overland Stage Company had offered to buy the Rock Creek Station from a man named David McCandless. So they got that name right. They gave... McCandless one-third of the payment, and they told him the rest of the payments would be paid within the next four months. But they didn't pay. So the Overland Stage Company had a manager of the Rock Creek Station named Horace Wellman, and McCandless was kind of pestering him. Hey, where's my money? Where's my money? Which, honestly, yeah, that makes total sense. They had a contract. They were going to pay him in four months for 
the property that he legally owned, and they didn't do it. So he's getting pissed. McCandless, to his discredit, was a pretty big bully and definitely had a reputation as a, as a major hothead. So that didn't do any good for him. And for some reason, he kind of had the target on the back of Bill Hickok. He did not like Bill Hickok. He called him Duck Bill because he had kind of a big nose and his lips kind of stuck out. But there is also the possible entanglement that there was a romantic entanglement that McCandless and Hickok were both involved with the same woman, a woman named Sandra Shaw. It's never been proven that either one of them was with her, but it there's enough, I can't think of the word, circumstantial evidence, that's the word, circumstantial evidence that suggests it could have been a factor. Anyway, McCandless also, to add fire to this already dicey situation, was a huge supporter of the South, which had just recently seceded and started the Civil War. And of course, Hickok, very staunchly Union and anti-slavery. Anyway, McCandless is finally fed up. So on July 12, he goes to the Rock Creek Station and he confronts Horsewellman about the money. Give me my money. Wellman has no control over it. He's just the manager of the station. He has no money to pay him and he has no legal obligation to do so. He's an employee. He's not one of the owners of the Overland Stage Company. And he tells him that. And McCandless verbally abuses him. Major detail that I just remembered I did not include. McCandless went to the Rock Creek Station with his shotgun, his 12-year-old son, and two friends, James Woods and James Gordon, both of them armed. So, yeah, this is a powder keg getting ready to explode. So there's a verbal altercation with Wellman. Wellman goes back inside. Then there's a verbal altercation with Wellman's wife, who is not a woman to be trifled with, as you'll see later. She goes back inside, and then finally Hickok comes out, and McCandless gives him the business. He says, get Horace Wellman back out here. I need to talk to him. Hickok goes back into the station to get Wellman. McCandless comes with. And I heard contradictory, uh, contradictory reports. I've heard that this happened at the Wellman's cabin, and I've also heard that it happened at the Rock Creek station. I'm not 100% clear on that. So forgive me for that. Anyway, they're now inside whatever building this happened. Let's say it's the cabin. And during this verbal altercation for the second time with Wellman, McCandless makes some sort of gesture with his shotgun. And Hickok, viewed it as a threat, immediately draws his revolver, aims, and shoots McCandless directly in the chest. Hitting him in the heart, he was dead before he hit the floor. James Woods and James Gordon were outside, they heard the shot, drew their pistols, came through the front door, and both were shot by Hickok. Neither one of them died, however. They both stumbled out of the house. Woods was injured pretty badly, stumbled into a patch of brush where Mrs. Wellman, who was pissed, apparently, about the verbal altercation, took a garden hoe and beat the crap out of him until he was dead. Yeah, she killed him with a garden hoe. Do not mess with Mrs. Wellman. Whew. The other James, James Gordon, ran for cover and was tracked down and eventually shot and killed 
by most likely Doc Brink, another Rock Creek employee who most likely had taken McCandless shotgun and blew Gordon away with it. So that's the true story. Hickok killed one man, shot two, and then was arrested for murder along with Brinks and Wellman. They were acquitted. They were acquitted based on self-defense. However, Hickok uh, was no dummy, and McCandless had friends around the area, so despite the fact that he was legally acquitted, he got out of Dodge, so to speak, and joined the Union Army. So Hickok joins the Union Army. There's some gaps in his Civil War record, so I'm going to try to give you what I know, talk about what may or may not be guessed at, just do the best I can to fill in some of these gaps. But what is for sure known is Hickok volunteered, but he volunteered and was selected as a scout. He had no interest in being cannon fodder in the infantry. He figured his best chance of surviving was using the skills that he had to be a scout. And he quickly saw action at Wilson's Creek, Battle of Wilson's Creek under General Nathaniel Lyon. So it's not like being a scout kept him out of danger, but uh, he he survived, obviously. And then all of a sudden there was a time where he's not working as a scout. He's kind of a civilian or contracted teamster. I don't know how it works exactly, but suddenly he's he's not really in the army, so to speak, but he's driving wagon trains for the army. So spring of 1862, a wagon train that he was leading was attacked and stolen by Confederates. It's a fun little story. He escapes, returns to Independence, Missouri, rounded up some men, recaptured the wagon train, and brought it back to the Union cause. Like, just little things like that just crop up in his life. Where it's like, oh, no big deal. I'm just going to take back this wagon train from the Confederates who stole it. It's, it's literally like a Wild West movie. The Civil War is when J.B. Hickok went from being Bill Hickok to wild bill hickok so independence hickok i don't know if he was on leave or stationed in independence missouri but either way he's in independence and there's a disturbance at a bar so the bartender in independence had voiced support for the south but most of the patrons in his bar were staunchly union so they were tuning this guy up and bill despite the fact that he was also a Union supporter in, in the Union Army, was not a big fan of unfair fights. So he draws his pistols, steps into the bar, and tells his attackers, you know, back off, or the attackers of the bartender, excuse me. They come at Bill Hickok. He shoots over their head. And he says, I'll shoot the next man that comes at me. Direct quote. And they must have believed him because the guys that were beating up the bartender... Like, yeah, you got it, man. We're out of here. So they left. Story starts making the rounds, and Bill was a recognizable character at this point. People in the in the city knew him by sight, for the most part. And so as he was walking by later, there was a meeting of what was called the Vigilance Committee, I believe it was called. Anyway, a woman sees him, looks at him and goes, Good for you, Wild Bill. And he's been Wild Bill in history ever since. From late 1862 to 1864, it's probable that Wild Bill was a spy for the Union Army, at least some of the time. Oftentimes, it seems, he was behind enemy lines and sometimes even was wearing a Confederate uniform to gain information. I actually read a story that said that 
much of his time in uniform was spent in a Confederate uniform. Like, he actually enrolled in the Confederate Army and was with them for, like, six months. It's like five or six months on the Confederate side in the Army until he had enough information, and then he took the information back to the Union side, which is pretty ballsy and impressive if it's true. This was the one part of Wild Bill's life where when I was reading up on it, it wasn't clear one way or the other what was myth and what was real. It was kind of vague. Like Most of his life is like, here's what people said happened, here's what actually happened. And it was pretty cut and dry. The Civil War, I, I struggled with a little bit, so I, I'm doing the best I can. Like Much of his war experiences was embellished, made up, exaggerated you know, for novels and newspapers and things like that. And even later in life, Wild Bill, embracing his legendary status, would tell stories that were not really based on fact. But people took it as gospel truth because it was literally coming from Wild Bill. But he embellished his own life. Hard to blame the guy. Anyway, there was one point in, from, again, from what I can tell, this seems to be a true story. Although, even as I'm telling the story, it seems a little bit exaggerated. He was recognized while in Confederate uniform. Someone recognized him. They immediately arrested him, court-martialed him, and he was set to hang. So he was being guarded in a small little cabin, and it was the middle of the night. Once Once the morning came, he was a dead man. Well, a storm hit the area, and with lightning flashes, apparently he could see a old rusty knife that was on the floor of this dilapidated cabin. So he laboriously cuts the bonds on his hands, and then he could kind of jimmy the door, and he was talking to the guard outside, like, hey, man, I'm a nice guy. Like, you want to come out of the rain? I'm not going to mess with you or anything like that. Just just come out of the rain, which the guard did, and Wild Bill slit his throat and then changed clothes with him and then guarded the cabin himself so as not to arouse suspicion until the other guards were either asleep or not paying attention, and then he took off and made his way back to the Union lines the next morning. And from everything I could see, this seems to be a true story, at least for the most part, which, again, wow, that is some... That is some manly... It's Wow. That is cool under pressure, you can say that. But, man, he knew how to take care of himself... (laughs) And it's just day after day, these kind of things uh, were surrounding Wild Bill. Anyway, he makes it through the war unscathed. Barely, but he does. But he is no longer interested in a job like farming post-Civil War. He's seen action, and he wants to go out there and get a taste of the West. He had a little taste. He wants more. He's 28 years old. He's a Civil War vet. He knows how to take care of himself. He's looking for adventure. So he goes to Springfield, Missouri. Drank, gambled, and he hung out with a man named David Tut. And this is going to prove to be a seminal moment in the life of Wild Bill Hickok. So David Tut and Wild Bill were good friends, but they had a falling out. It could have been because of a ex-girlfriend, Hickok's ex-girlfriend, Susanna Moore, started going out with Tut. But more than likely, it had to do with money, as these things do. Hickok liked to play cards. 
and he had cleaned out Tut. And so Tut was trying to underwrite other card players. And basically, Tut's goal was make Wild Bill go broke, get him out of town. They, they just did not like each other. He didn't want to be in the same town with him anymore. So David Tut was giving money to other players, but Hickok kept winning. So he kept taking the other player's money, which in reality was David Tut's money. So David Tut is getting pissed. And he comes up with this story, says, hey, Wild Bill, you owe me money. Uh, there's something about a horse deal or something like that. And Hickok immediately pulls out some money and gives him, I don't know, it's like $25 or something like that. David Tut says, no, 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 you owe me more. And Hickok refuses. He said, that's BS. This is what I owe you. Here's your money. Leave me alone. David Tut instead takes Wild Bill's pocket watch. And this is a nice gold pocket watch. And so he says, you can have your watch back when you pay me. And that really ground grinds. Wild Bill's not happy about it. It grinds his gears. It's kind of a pride thing, but it's also, that's a really nice watch. So Tut is bragging around town that he's going to go parade out on Main Street with Wild Bill's watch. He's goading Wild Bill. And finally, Hickok has had enough. He tells David Tut's friends, quote, he shouldn't come across that square unless dead man can walk. Hickok is not messing around. David Tut knows that he cannot not go through with this parade. And so on July 21, 1865, he's out on Main Street of Springfield and he meets Wild Bill. Wild Bill has his Colt revolvers holstered. He's trying to avoid a fight. It doesn't happen. And what does happen is the basis for almost every action scene in a Western movie ever. Because Tut goes for his gun. Wild Bill, being the faster gunslinger, draws his weapon, balances his pistol on his left arm, fires, and hits David Tut directly in the chest. And like a true Western wild man would do, David Tut gets shot, yells out, and I quote, Boys, I'm killed! Staggers and falls dead. The bullet had entered his torso between the fifth and seventh rib and hit him in the heart. It is the first documented case of a quick-draw duel being fought in the American frontier. Awesome. I'm sorry, someone's dead, but that is awesome. It's a literal quick-draw duel. Uh, this town ain't big enough for the two of us. Bam! That happens not nearly as often as entertainment portrays it as happening in the Wild West. But it did happen, and Wild Bill was the first true gunslinger, and he did not mess around. He mess you up. You go against Wild Bill, and you are dead. Literally. He was the fastest gun around. And this story spread quickly. And Wild Bill becomes a national legend and also someone that you do not mess with. He's also arrested for murder for the second time in his life. <laughs> it's a little like denouement to that story. 
The charge was reduced to manslaughter, but then he once again was acquitted on self-defense because witnesses testified, A, that Hickok tried to avoid a fight, and B, that Tut drew first, so therefore Hickok had to shoot him dead in self-defense. So, same story, basically. Self-defense, and he was acquitted. But, again, uh, David Tut had friends in Springfield, so Hickok decided, eh, probably better if I, if I just leave. He became a deputy U.S. marshal at Fort Riley, so his duties were officially to hunt down public property, which pretty much was deserters from the U.S. Army and horses that were stolen by thieves. And at one point, he had tracked down three deserters. One was riding on a mule very near to Hickok, not bound in any way, just riding. And uh, observers said to Hickok, don't you think it's a little dangerous to let him be riding so close to you? Aren't you worried he's going to grab your gun? Hickok said that he wasn't worried. If the guy went for Hickok's gun, Hickok would just pull the other gun and shoot all three men before they could even get a shot off. He was very confident in his abilities, and he always carried two guns, and he took pride in the fact that he could shoot just as well with his right hand as his left hand, or his left hand as his right hand. He was right-handed. Ambidextrous, incredibly accurate, and fast. In fact, there was an observer. It was actually the same guy that asked him, hey, are you worried about this? He said, no. The same guy later claimed, and this has been claimed by multiple people, so this is this is fairly accurate. In terms of his ridiculous accuracy, he could draw and shoot a target no bigger than a silver dollar at 20 steps before another man could draw and shoot the ground. So he was fast and accurate. Just the absolute idyllic Western frontiersman. I'm like, literally, listen to me. You have a crush on this guy. I'm not ashamed of it either. Anyway, Hickok got bored. 1866, he signed on to be a guide for General William Tecumseh Sherman on his tour of the West. Uh, guided Sherman to Fort Kearney in Nebraska and uh, did some other trips in that area. I think and he eventually made his way down to like New Mexico and things like that. Anyway, just kind of skipping around a little bit. I can't go into every little detail of Wild Bill's life. But in September, he returns to Fort Riley, meets the new commander of Fort Riley. And again, as is the, you know, par for the course of Wild Bill Hickok, the character that is the new commander of Fort Riley is an extremely famous person named Lieutenant Colonel George Armstrong Custer. General Custer. He's only called General Custer because that was his rank in the Civil War. And you always refer to him as General Custer. That was the highest rank he attained. But once the Civil War ended, he was demoted down to Lieutenant Colonel. So he meets and becomes acquainted with George Armstrong Custer and his wife Libby. It's like, <laughs> again, this ridiculously famous person. And Hickok is just like, hey, buddy. He made quite an impression on the Custers. Libby Custer, the wife of George Armstrong Custer, lived for quite a long time. She lived to be something like in the 90s, uh, 90-year-old woman. In 1933, she finally passed away. Her entire life, all those years, she spent denying the fact that she had had an affair with Wild Bill Hickok. But uh, she didn't deny it very strongly. And uh, she was very complimentary of his looks in letters that she wrote. So there is definitely enough evidence to warrant speculation that 
Wild Bill Hickok probably slept with George Armstrong Custer's wife. Jeez. <laughs> I shouldn't say probably. He maybe did, though. Like, definitely maybe. So not only was he meeting famous people, he was betting famous people. Anyway. This was about the time, 1867, that the article that was written about Wild Bill Hickok and the McCandless Affair was finally published. And Wild Bill was already famous for the quick draw duel with David Tutt, but this came out and, man, did his fame explode. It played loose with the facts, but he became one of the most famous people in America and for sure the most famous person on the American frontier. So, just talking a little bit about Wild Bill and his philosophy and his legend. So, obviously, the most famous thing about Wild Bill, he was a shootist. That was the contemporary term for what we would call like a gunslinger, a quick-draw duelist. He used a Navy Colt revolver, 36 caliber Navy Colt revolver, and in 1873, when it became available, he upgraded to the single-action Army Colt 45. If you think about the single-action Army Colt 45, I mean, that is the gun that if you picture the Wild West revolver, I guarantee you're picturing that gun. Pearl-handled revolver, six-shooter, just, you know, one in each hand, bam, 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 12 shots, hope it's enough. His philosophy, Wild Bill's philosophy, was draw fast and pump out as many bullets as possible before the other guy can get a shot off. So he was very accurate, but he also believed in overwhelming firepower. Just let him have it. And he was a legend, not only for his quick draw ability, but like I've mentioned before, his accuracy. He could shoot accurately with both hands, and he could drive a cork into a whiskey bottle at 20 paces. Also at 20 paces, he could split a bullet on the edge of a dime, and he could put 12 holes in a can thrown in the air. And he would do this display of accuracy throughout the frontier for many reasons one he enjoyed being a legend and he wanted to make sure that his fame continued but also besides just getting practice in these demonstrations that he did for people the story spread that wild bill was fast and deadly accurate so any shootist or gunslinger that was looking to make a name for himself by taking on wild bill had better think twice because more than likely he's going to find himself in a hole However, the article had a negative effect on Wild Bill's life as well. He became very famous, but he became a marked man. And he knew it. He knew that people were gunning for him. This is Wild West. You can make a name for yourself just like Wild Bill did by taking down the best gunslinger out there. So whenever he was inside, say, a saloon or you know, any type of building, he always kept his back to the wall. And he never walked down the sidewalks. He always walked right down the middle of the street so he could see danger coming at him. And he did kind of develop this sixth sense. He never seemed to be caught unaware. He was always ready. He wasn't even 30 yet at this point. Keep that in mind. He's still very young. Incredibly famous. Didn't seem to affect his ego, however. He was always described as very courteous chivalrous he especially seemed to have a tender spot for children he was always very tender protective and just gentlemanly towards children and 
another more unique aspect of a, a Wild West frontiersman life. He never sought confrontation. He'd be ready to put someone down if they came at him, but he never went out of his way to start a fight. It's just not his style. So it was during this time of insane fame, Wild Bill spent a lot of time as a guide for the Army, especially in Kansas, but also Nebraska. So it was a pretty good life. It was a pretty good life for him. It was uh, it was paying well. And in his downtime, he could spend time in cities, drinking, gambling, and wearing nice clothes. You know, when he was out on the trail, he was wearing your buckskin and more your frontiersman type clothes. But get into the city, dandy it up a little bit. So also from this time period, I had to include this little fun, weird story. Wild Bill was asked asked to be an umpire for a baseball game between the Kansas City Antelopes and the Atchison Pomeroys. Kansas City was the home team, and baseball games during this era didn't usually finish, or didn't always finish, because there was usually some sort of dispute with the umpire and or with the other team, and a brawl would ensue, which would turn into a riot, and it was just game over. So, and that's what happened in the previous matchup between these two teams. So they invited Wild Bill to be the umpire and hope in hopes that A, it would be like an honorific thing to have the Wild Bill be the umpire, but also that his legend and his persona might prevent a brawl from breaking out and they could actually finish this rematch between the two teams. Kansas City had an ordinance. Guns were not allowed in Kansas City, but there was a special dispensation given to wild bill so he's literally in umpire gear or what passed for umpire gear back in you know the 1860s with two revolvers on his hips <laughs> umpire the game fully loaded and the game was finished they completed the game the kansas city antelopes won 48 to 28 <laughs> that is a baseball score not basketball 48 to 28 at this time in baseball history, pitches were thrown underhand, so there was way more hits than the strikeouts, and the score just got run way up. And that cracked me up, and I could not possibly include—I could not possibly have a podcast about Wild Bill without including that. But moving on, Wild Bill Hickok became marshal uh, in boy, let's see, it was eighteen sixty-seven, I think it was around eighteen sixty-seven. He became a marshal again, tracking down deserters and horse thieves. December 22, 1867, at 30 years old, after the incredibly violent and adventurous life that he has lived up to this point, was finally shot for the first time in his entire life. He's had a lot of injuries in the past, you know, bear attack and things like that. He's never been shot until 1867. He was in Jefferson County, Nebraska. He walked into a saloon and the other patrons, for whatever reason, it didn't really say, but they were just giving him a hard time. They were mocking him. He was this mud-covered stranger. They didn't realize it was Wild Bill. And so they were just giving him the business. And he ignored them. But finally, he was drinking some whiskey. And a man purposely bumped into him. So Wild Bill, instead of drinking the whiskey, spilled it all over his face. And he had enough. Backhanded this guy across the face. And then said, and I quote, Now cut it out before this gets serious. In what can only be called the understatement of all understatements. Because <laughs> literally everybody in the bar was ready to beat the crap out of him. Knock it off before this gets serious. Or cut it out before this gets serious. Several of the patrons in the bar went for their guns at this point. But again, Wild Bill's quicker. Pulls out his gun, shoots one man, but then is shot in the shoulder. Now, most people at this time were 
right or left-handed. He gets shot in the right shoulder, which is where he, he's holding the gun in his right hand. They assume that he's disarmed. Nuh-uh. While Bill pulls out the pistol with his left arm, as we've discussed, he's ambidextrous, continues shooting, shoots two more men, and then the man who he had backhanded was on the floor getting up with a gun in his hand while Bill shoots his jaw off, which is just horrific. Shoots off part of his jaw. Can't even imagine. And even worse, maybe, is that guy that got his jaw shot off was the only one that survived. Of the four men that were shot by Wild Bill, the guy that had his jaw shot off survived, and the rest were killed. Again, just drinking in a bar, suddenly, quick draw, bam, 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 everybody's shooting each other. Just, it's crazy. But Wild Bill was wounded, shot in the shoulder, and... uh After shooting the four men, the rest of the patrons decided, whoa, okay, we bit off more than we can chew here. He leaves, he goes to a Kansas City hotel, and he recuperates. And then, we're skipping ahead a little bit, 1869, he becomes marshal in Hayes City, Kansas. And in what is possibly one of my favorite quotes of all time, it was said at the time that if you were making trouble in Hayes City, Kansas, the marshal Wild Bill would give you three options. You can get on the first train heading east, you can get on the first train heading west, or you can head north in the morning. Why is that so badass? Because north was where the cemetery is. <laughs> so if you cause trouble in Hayes City, it's either get out of town or get killed. Man, do not mess with Wild Bill. How many times have I said that? And skipping ahead again, I mean, I, I have to skip around a little bit. There's just too much information. April of 1871, Wild Bill becomes Marshal of Abilene. Abilene is a cattle town that at the time, extremely rough, lawless, just the absolute, yeah, Wild West town of all imagination. Everybody talks about Dodge City, but before there was Dodge City, there was Abilene. You know, he was he was kind of bored. He took the job in Abilene because... He wanted something to do, and he figured if he could tame Abilene and survive, his legend would only grow. So that was what he planned to do. And in Abilene, this has got to be one of the coolest stories that I think I've ever read about the Wild West. How many times have I said that? He's uh, in a bar, and a fistfight breaks out with uh, some cowboys. So Abilene's a cattle town. Cowboys from Texas drive cattle herds up to Abilene to get them on the train to head east. And then they get paid and they get drunk and gamble and fight in Abilene saloons before they head back to Texas to start it all over. If I remember correctly, guns were not allowed in Abilene. Again, kind of like Kansas City, of course, while Bill, being the marshal, was armed. But it was mostly fistfights and maybe knives that were the main causes of issues in Abilene. So one night there's a fight in a saloon. Wild Bill goes in, breaks it up by beating up a bunch of guys with his own two fists, throws them out of the saloon, tells them to get out of town. They did not appreciate that one bit. So the next morning, about two dozen of these Texas cowboys come riding into town, fully armed, looking for Wild Bill with a full intention of finding him, finding a tree and hanging him by his neck until he's dead. Hickok hears about this. He doesn't run. He doesn't hide. No. He gets two revolvers on his waist, and he picks up a Winchester repeating rifle, walks out to the middle of the street, and waits for them to come riding into town. And two dozen to one, 
Keep that in mind. Two dozen to one. Cowboys ride into town while Bill waits for them to get close. Aims at the front guy of this group of two dozen and says, I quote, hide out, you sons of bitches. Which I'm not even sure what that means, but it's got to be one of the single coolest things that's ever been said on the frontier. Because it is one against two dozen and he is completely fearless. <laughs> hide out, you sons of bitches. And they believed him. Two dozen to one, and they saw him standing there aiming a rifle at the lead guy, and they went, yeah, you know, you're right. We're not going to take on Wild Bill. And they took off and went back to Texas. <laughs> That's a true story, 100% true. And from everything that I read, it wasn't exaggerated. It was literally two dozen to one. And because it was Wild Bill, they were like, yeah, forget it, not worth it. Just unbelievable. But moving on, we got to get into the later years of Wild Bill's life. Abilene, 1871, still the marshal. Wild Bill meets the woman that becomes the love of his life, Agnes Lake, the owner and operator of the Hippo Olympiad and Mammoth Circus. She was the only female circus director in the entire country, and this was when traveling circuses were a fairly prominent business. Hey guys, 34, and at this point, he's kind of... Uh, He's kind of done everything, and he's kind of getting tired of his fame. He's he's a legendary status. He enjoys it, but he, boy, he's really getting tired of uh, being a marked man. He's been he's been marked for assassination. He's 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 put down people that have tried to shoot him in the back. He's taken out criminals that have been gunning for him. He's, maybe it's time to settle down. So he meets Agnes Lake. She is older than him by about 10 or 11 years and she is mourning the murder of her first husband and meets wild bill when the circus comes to town wild bill also at this point was dealing with some emotional issues there was a shootout in abilene some assassins and wannabe gunslingers, basically people that just wanted to have the fame of taking out wild bill were wow that's a simplistic version of the story, but I don't have time to go into the whole story. Anyway, he had some enemies in Abilene. They were coming for him finally after a long, drawn-out process. He got into a gunfight, and in the chaos, he spun around, saw a man with a gun, shot, and killed this man. Turns out it was his deputy, Mike Williams. And this really devastated Wild Bill. He had always been proud of the fact that he had never killed a man that didn't have it coming. He never went out of his way to kill someone that didn't deserve it in his mind. And now he shot his deputy who definitely did not deserve it was actually on the way to help him. And it really affected wild bill psychologically and emotionally he started to doubt his abilities, started to doubt his choice of lifestyle. And he started to think maybe it's, maybe it's time to, to settle down. Also, in late December of 1871, Abilene had made some changes, and long story short, some laws were implemented, and basically, a marshal of Wild Bill's caliber was no longer necessary. So, he was let go, so to speak. And this kind of leads to a period of a few years of kind of a sad story of Wild Bill and his, his downfall. And it, it genuinely makes me sad. I don't know why. I really don't. But it bummed me out. So he starts kind of roaming the frontier again. He stays in contact via letters with 
with Agnes Lake, but she's not ready to give up the circus business and he's not really ready to settle down, although he's starting to maybe think about it. So he's roaming the frontier. He makes his way to Colorado. There he meets Charlie Utter. Charlie Utter ends up becoming one of his absolute best friends. Um, but it's also around this time where Wild Bill finally sees a doctor. He'd been having some issues with his eyesight recently, irritation and blurred vision. And he got a diagnosis and was told that it was very possible that he could eventually go blind. There's no firm diagnosis. Records weren't really kept at this time. And so it's all speculation of what could have been causing it. It, it could have definitely been secondary syphilis, which is a venereal disease. Wild Bill definitely spent a fair amount of time with what was called uh, in the time soiled doves, which is just a delicate way to say whore. Professional prostitute. It could have, but it could have been glaucoma. It could have been conjunctivitis, you know, chronic conjunctivitis. Nobody knows, but one way or the other, he was experiencing blurred vision and irritation, and it was very possible that he could go blind. And this continued to get worse from now until the end of his life. Later on in life, he would wear dark colored sunglasses almost all the time because he was so sensitive to light, sunlight, spotlights, whatever it was. This is a big deal. For anybody, but for Wild Bill especially, I mean, he made his living and his legend on being a gunfighter. You can't be a very good gunfighter if you can't see what you're shooting at. So his entire lifestyle was in jeopardy, and he didn't know what to do about it. So he needed money. He tr he tried his hand at producing a Wild West show in Niagara Falls. It was an abysmal failure. Like he he tried to get some sort of show with Comanche Indians and Buffalo and, you know, bring the Wild West to Niagara Falls. And it, it was just a disaster. The Buffalo broke out of the enclosure and started running rampant through the city. The Comanche Indians were running after him, trying to rile him up. Wild Bill and his partner just kind of bailed. I'm like, ah, I'm out of here. And, yeah, they didn't make any money. Wild Bill was broke. And so he went back to the West and uh, was eventually found by his very good friend, Buffalo Bill Cody, who signed him on to be a part of Buffalo Bill Cody's Wild West show. And uh, Wild Bill wasn't a very good actor, and he didn't enjoy it. He wasn't very good at it, wasn't enjoying it, was drinking way too much, and eventually got to the point where it was just better for everybody if he did not continue on with the production. So he stayed on for a while, and drew big crowds just to see Wild Bill. And no matter how poorly he did, the crowd loved him. But it was not a good situation. It kind of strained his relationship a little bit with Buffalo Bill. Not enough that uh, they weren't friends anymore, but enough that it was best if they parted ways. So he went back to Cheyenne, Wyoming for a while, and he reconnected with Agnes Lake and continued to be in contact with letters. And... uh turns out that on March 5, 1876, they got married, which is good for them. He was about 39. She was 49 going on 50. And uh, they honeymooned in Cincinnati, which is where Agnes's family was. And then Agnes stayed in Cincinnati. She was going to go through the process of turning over directorship of the circus to somebody, not sure. And while Bill decided that he was going to head to the Black Hills of South Dakota, where gold had been found 
and he was going to send for his wife when either things went his way or he was going to come back to Cincinnati after he had made his his money and his you know he could settle down so the way he got to the Black Hills was he joined up with Charlie Utter Charlie Utter had a business venture where he was going to have wagon trains that went from Cheyenne Wyoming to the Black Hills and it was going to be they were going to bring supplies, but also mail and things like that. So Hickok and Utter left Cheyenne on June 27, 1876. It was the same week as the Battle of Little Bighorn and the death of George Armstrong Custer, although they didn't know it at the time. At Fort Laramie, they joined up with another caravan that uh, included a wagon driver, teamster, named Martha Jane Canary. But you probably know her as Calamity Jane. Much to Wild Bill's dismay. Calamity Jane claimed in later life, and it has been pushed in movies and in books and things like that, fiction, that her and Wild Bill became romantic and that they even had a baby together. Completely false. Calamity Jane, uh, I might do a podcast on her later. She's pretty fascinating. She had all these stories about all the incredible things that she did in her life, and she was extremely famous at this point. She was probably almost as famous as Wild Bill. But she made up a ton of the stories. It's been pretty much proven that a lot of the things she said she did and that she became very famous for, she did not do. She was a prostitute and a scout, but she definitely wasn't a romantic partner of Wild Bill. In fact, Wild Bill really could barely tolerate her presence. Very strongly disliked her. She rubbed him the wrong way. And Wild Bill was completely devoted to Agnes. He was completely smitten with her. So any romantic entanglement that Calamity Jane claimed was just trying to ride Wild Bill's coattails. Anyway, July of 1876, the caravan and Wild Bill arrive in Deadwood, South Dakota. It's a boomtown that was caused by the gold rush. It's an incorporated territory in Indian territory. It's not actually an official part of the United States at this point. That comes into play later. And it's extremely violent. I, honestly, I could do a whole podcast about Deadwood. Maybe I will. The more I think about the Wild West, the more ideas pop into my head because I had so much fun with this episode. Anyway, they come into town. Wild Bill was pretty moody. Uh, he was pretty melancholy. Charlie Utter pressed him, asked him, "What's what's going on? You know, well, you know, you're you're really down." And this was a direct quote. Wild Bill said, "I feel that my days are numbered. My sun is sinking fast. I know I shall be killed here. Something tells me I shall never leave these hills alive. Somebody is going to kill me." Yikes! That that is a uh, that's a downer. Uh, even bigger downer. He was not wrong. Skipping ahead to August. Got to finish up here. Unfortunately, I could, talk, I could I could do another hour probably on Wild Bill if I if I included all the stuff that I wanted to include. But I'm already over an hour. This is the longest episode I've done in in months. Anyway, August one, eighteen seventy six. Wild Bill playing cards had a real good run of cards, and he cleaned out another player named Jack McCall. Jack McCall was stupid. There's no other way to say it. He's a stupid man. He was a drunk, and he seemed harmless. So after 
taking all his money, Hickok gave him some money, said, you can buy some breakfast tomorrow. And he also told him, don't play cards anymore, man. You suck. <laughs> I'm paraphrasing, of course. But that's basically what he told him. McCall did not appreciate that. Next day, August 2, it's a Wednesday, Wild Bill walks into the saloon called Nuttle and Man's Number 10 Saloon. It's about 3 p.m. There's a poker game already in process. It's three players, Carl Mann, Charles Rich, and William Massey. Charles Rich is a teenager, about 17 years old. He's in the seat against the wall. That's Wild Bill's customary seat. He always has his back to the wall. So Wild Bill goes to join the card game, and he asks Rich to give up the seat. And whether because of stubbornness or superstition, he refuses to trade seats. So uneasily, Wild Bill takes a different seat that gives him unlimited view of the front door but there's also a rear exit to his back and he's not happy about it he asks multiple times for rich to trade seats but he won't do it so hickok is having a run of bad luck it's not like the day before he gets cleaned out he asks for a loan from the bartender the bartender brings him the chips and when the bartender brings him over wild bill referring to the other card player massey said, the old duffer broke me on the last hand. It's the last words he ever spoke. Jack McCall had come into the bar some time ago and had just been sitting at the saloon, uh, the bar. So he'd come into the saloon, he's sitting at the bar, and he's been drinking. And while Bill, either because he didn't notice, because McCall seems like a harmless moron, or because his eyesight had gotten bad enough that he didn't actually recognize who it was, took no notice of Jack McCall. This is one of the only times that Wild Bill's sixth sense failed him. So over time, McCall eases up behind Wild Bill and about 4.10 in the afternoon, takes out a 45 caliber revolver, puts it to the back of Wild Bill Hickok's head and pulls the trigger while shouting, Damn you, take that! Wild Bill didn't have a chance. Bullet goes into the back of his head, exits below his right cheekbone, and hits William Massey in the wrist. Wild Bill falls to the floor, and he's dead before he hits the ground. Which is a sad way to go. McCall is arrested. Originally, he's acquitted because he claimed falsely that while in Abilene, Wild Bill had killed his brother. And at that time, avenging a family member was a legitimate reason to kill somebody. However, Charlie Utter, being the very good friend that he was, was understandably quite distraught over the murder of his friend, and he pestered the authorities to look into this case again, and he got a chance. Now, while Bill, uh, excuse me, Jack McCall had completely lied. First off, he never had a brother. And... There is no record of Wild Bill killing any relative of Jack McCall's in Abilene. So he didn't really have a leg to stand on, but he got away with it at first. However, because the city of Deadwood was not incorporated territory, it was not officially part of the U.S., they declared that his trial was illegal and he was arrested again and put on trial in Yankton, South Dakota. He was found guilty of murder 
sentenced to hang and was hung by the neck until dead on March 1, 1877. So in the end, Wild Bill Hickok, age 39, was not killed by some ambitious gunslinging outlaw, but by a drunk loser who was mad about a card game. It's uh, probably not the way he wanted to go, but that's what happened. I feel really bad, too, for Agnes Lake. I mean, she had not that long ago gotten gotten over the murder of her first husband, and then, I don't even think it was 10 years later, her second husband, who she seemed to genuinely love, of course, shot and killed again. Man, rough time for that woman. Wild Bill, while shot and killed, was holding in his hand a pair of aces, a pair of eights, and a queen. The exact suits are unknown. That's what he's holding in his hand. And forever will be known in poker as Dead Man's Hand. Legacy to Wild Bill. The ultimate, ultimate Wild West man. And a great way to start off the Legends of the West. So that is it for the first episode of the Legends of the West. Hope you enjoyed. I hope the next few episodes of this series, whenever I decide to do them, are just as good. Hoping it peak. But that's it for now. Come back next month. We're going to do a deep dive into the disturbing and darkly fascinating world of Charles Manson and his theory of Helter Skelter. It's weird. It's dark. It's disturbing. It's wildly interesting. Until next time, I'm Brett Bosma. I'm the host of this podcast, The Curiosity Chronicles. And as always, I hope that you stay curious.